Hey everybody, this is Jamie Pride, and welcome to episode 22 of the Failure Proof Podcast. Everyone, thank you for joining us on the podcast where we explore performance, resilience, and the mindset needed to thrive in the modern workplace. If you are enjoying the podcast, please spread the word. And if you'd like to rate us on iTunes, that would also be awesome. The first thing I need to do is apologize. We've been uh, having a bit of a hiatus and a bit of a break whilst I've been squirreled away over the past few weeks working on my new book, Failure Proof, which is expected to be published later this year. So thanks a lot for your patience. That said, we have some very exciting guests coming up on the show in the next few weeks. On this week's show, I am joined by Taryn Williams. Taryn is one of Australia's most popular female entrepreneurs and digital influencers. She was awarded the 2017 B&T Women in Media Tech Leader and recognized for her work with The Right.Fit, winning the 2018 Mumbrella Award for Innovation. Taryn has featured in the B&T Hot 30 Under 30, Smart Company 30 Under 30, and has been a finalist for numerous awards, including the 2015 Female Entrepreneur Awards. Taryn was also announced in 2018 as one of the global faces of Max Factor. A former model, Taryn launched Wink Models in 2007 at the ripe old age of 21 and it is and has since cemented its place as one of Australia's leading commercial modelling agencies with turnover in the millions. In 2016, she launched her second business, The Right.Fit, a two-sided marketplace connecting brands with creative talent and influencers. Soon after launch, she successfully negotiated investment from Airtree Ventures along with other strategic partners and funds. The platform has over 6,500 talent and has worked with some absolutely huge brands. Taryn is a powerhouse of energy. In this episode, we speak about finding mentors and advisors, scaling her business, how to hire a team, how she introduces gratitude into her businesses, and her leap into the world of tech startups. This is one of my most favorite interviews of late, and I'm sure you will take something away from it. And welcome to the show, Taryn Williams. Thank you so much for having me. It is absolutely my pleasure. We've been trying to organise this for ages. (laughs) (laughs) I know, two busy people with busy diaries. (laughs) It's almost impossible to schedule us both, but thank you so much for taking some time. It's great to catch up. And so I I can't even really know where to, I don't even know where to begin. You've done (laughs) so much in such a short space of time. Oh no, I'm old, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not as old as me, I'm sure. Um, Tell me about your entrepreneurial history like you started Wink at 21. I did I did so I'd always been in the industry myself so I started modeling when I was about 15 and then moved into producing um, both for sort of TVCs and print campaigns for photographers and a lot of live experiential campaigns and so I'd sort of been both sides of the table both as a talent and as a client and I could just sort of see that things could be done differently. It didn't have to be this sort of negative industry that it had become and talent weren't getting paid on time and and models didn't have, you know, a great experience with their agents and agents didn't have a great relationship with clients. So no one was really winning in in this sort of scenario. And with the blissful naivety of youth, you know, I was 21 and I thought, well, I can start my own agency. I'm going to build a business that does this differently, treats everyone with decency and respect and pays them on time. So pays everyone within seven days, irrespective of when we get paid by clients. So, um, which was pretty, pretty different in the industry. Obviously the um, general pay time was sort of 
45, 60, 90 days from doing a job as a model. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to start this industry. And I was at this um, agency and everyone was so supportive. I mean, our models could really understand what I was trying to do and what I was trying to achieve for them. And clients got really got behind us. They, um, they understood that we were trying to make a positive shift in the industry and, and that it meant that they were going to have talent who could afford to do their jobs. Um, because they could financially stay in the industry. It was viable for them to do this as a career now um, because they could rely on being paid. So, um, yeah, so that was twelve, nearly 12 years ago now um, and now we have about 650 models Australia-wide, Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. Wow. Um, and, yeah, it's been it's been incredible. Obviously, it's been quite the journey. So And so do you come from an entrepreneurial background? Like, Well, you, I've you never really had a job, so, yeah. so I guess that makes it difficult. So, no, look, my parents parents aren't entrepreneurs, um, but they're incredibly supportive people. And I think um, all of my early mentors um, from when I was sort of about 17, um, I probably didn't realise at the time were entrepreneurs, um, had their own businesses or were very entrepreneurial minded. Um, So I guess without knowing it, that sort of shaped me. And I didn't realise that it was so different to go and start your own company as opposed to going and getting a job. And I guess also being in the creative industry, you know, I was surrounded by all of these incredible, driven, passionate people who were photographers or creative directors or other models or makeup artists who were managing their own sort of career and lives. So I probably didn't have a very traditional entry into the workforce, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah, but I mean, but like I guess the naivety of youth sort of is fantastic. Definitely, definitely. And now I always just say I'm unemployable, so now I have to be <laughs> self-employed. <laughs> Me kind of too, but that's for a different reason. Um, and, and so was that your first job? Did you like go from school to modelling or did you work at Macca's? Oh, definitely. Or? I'd had a load of different, you know, like I'd worked in a cafe and at a clothing store and, you know, I'd had lots of little part-time jobs over the years, which I loved. Um, but obviously it was really hard to juggle things like uni and other careers while you're modelling and travelling and, and all of the things that come with that. Um, yeah, so it was my first real sort of career career was um, was running my own show. And did it feel like a big deal at the time or did it sort of, sort of no. seem natural? No, yeah, and I really did didn't know anything else and I guess you know being being a model even when you're working for an agency and you have an agent you know representing you you are really self-employed you know it's up to you to update your portfolio and go to all your castings which is sort of like a job interview really and you know so you are you know to to be successful you have to be incredibly driven and incredibly focused and and I think incredibly entrepreneurial you have to be out there networking making the most of what can be like a quite short career and so you founded Wink on the basis that it was really, I guess, buy a model for models. Yeah, really. yeah, it really was. And and for clients, like I wanted to build um, an agency where both parties thrived, where we were on their team. And we from day one, I always said, you know, I wanted us to be an extension of our clients' team. So we weren't this combative other party, which is sort of how the industry had been built, that clients would ring and they would have this really sort of combative relationship with an agency that would argue over rates or whatever it would be. Um, And I wanted it to change and I wanted us to be an extension of their team and finding them a great outcome, a talent that they could afford or that matched their brief or whatever it was and finding a way for that to be a, a really positive process instead of one that was sort of dictatorial or and same with talent I really wanted talent to be able to come to us and us to be an extension of their family be able to support them help them obviously you you 
get models in quite an early period of their life where they're going through a lot of changes. So moving out of home, going through their first big breakup, you know, whatever it might be. So trying to really be there as a support network and system for them. And what did year one feel like? Is it Was it a garage-style business? Absolutely, absolutely. And what I love these days is that you can start a business with so little, you know, yeah. laptop, mobile phone. I Can't didn't have it. an office, exactly. <laughs> working from home, I was working every hour that God sends, you know, just trying to – I remember like vividly sitting up until midnight like Googling photographers and, you know, getting all of their contact details and emailing them and calling them and saying, hey, this is my agency, this is what we're about, you know, we'd love to be on your casting list. So it was the true hustle um, and I loved it, I loved it. You know, and obviously there comes a point where you realize you can't do all of the things yourself and um, I needed to scale that business. And and the great thing was is that grew, it really grew organically. You know, it had great growth year on year every year for 12 years, which is, you know, amazing. So um, clients could really see what we were doing. Talent were incredibly loyal. Um, and, yeah, the business sort of grew from there. And were you still working as a model at the time? No, I stopped when I started Wink. Um, retired? I retired. <laughs> and, um, and, look, it sort of happened naturally because I was um, chained to my desk you know what it's like you know it's very very hard in the early days of a startup um, to be able to escape and go and do anything else and look I still dabble now um, you know with particular clients um, that I'm an ambassador for and and get back on the other side of the camera but it's it's pretty rare keep your keep your finger yeah in yeah dust off the boots yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so during that, so 12 years is huge. I mean, mm. like most businesses don't survive three. What do you think was the key to your early success? I think having to be really gritty and really tenacious. I mean, there's so many points in that journey that I could have stopped and that, I, you know, possibly <laughs> benefit of hindsight, you know, you go, you know, I don't know how I got through that. And um, and I had amazing people around me. I had amazing mentors and, and supporters and champions who really helped um, through some of those tough early years. Um, but I think just being doggedly tenacious and going, I really wanted this, I really want this to be. And I could see, you know, we had um, – you know, what would, I guess, product market fit, you know, you call it in a tech business, but, you know, our, our clients loved what we were offering and our talent loved what we were offering and we had such great feedback and I could see it was working and so it sort of made those late nights and, and lost weekends and public holidays in the office all worth it. Yeah, it, it, I think when I speak to entrepreneurs, especially ones who've been through sort of challenging times, mm. when they're doing something they're super passionate about, they tend to stick yeah. at it through the yeah. tougher times. Yeah, I think um, I think it's in an entrepreneur's DNA too. Like I think that you have to have a pretty high risk appetite and I think mm. you have to be pretty tenacious and gritty and and um, and a problem solver looking for those opportunities and going, okay, well, maybe I can slightly pivot this way or, you know, fill that gap with this skill set or this person or this, you know, type of resources. Yeah, and I think it's a bit of a paradox. I think you're absolutely spot mm. on. Like it's definitely grit or persistence, whatever you want to call mm. it, is part of the entrepreneurial DNA. However, I've seen entrepreneurs like Thelma and Louise and just drive off a cliff, you know, like in, in sense that at what point do you sort of go, it isn't working? I mean, that hasn't happened for you. Absolutely. But, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs sort of face that dilemma sometimes where yeah. they go, I can't give up. Yeah. But I probably should. Yeah. Don't throw good money after bad money. You know, it's it's that point of, yeah, being able to get enough perspective and go, okay. And this is why I think it's really important to have a board or people around you who can sort of hold you a little bit accountable and go, is that working or is it, you know, 
perhaps a trend that you're seeing or and also I think also keeping you aware of you know that's probably something that was really important for me for the transition from wink to the right fit was keeping aware of industry trends and sort of looking to your horizon because you can get so focused as an entrepreneur and a founder on you know executing the day-to-day and you're so in it um, it's really hard to pull yourself out and get that sort of 30,000 feet perspective and and look to the landscape and go okay well what's happening in our industry what's happening more broadly in like a macro sort of sense uh, you know where where is the economy what 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 are the changes that we're going to see in the next 6 12 18 months and and how is that going to affect my business in the day to day so and and you mentioned earlier that you had assembled a board of advisors mm. or you had people around you who mentored you yes. was that something you did deliberately or did that sort of happen organically no it definitely happened organically and people ask me this all the time like how do you get a mentor and i'm like i, I really can't answer that because mine sort of definitely happened um quite organically probably later in my career i was a little bit more structured about who I approached and how but in the early days it really just came from relationships just people that I'd met through um, day-to-day interactions in the business um, or people that I admired that I'd reached out to and and had a coffee with and then on I suppose they they become quite vested in your journey Um, and they oh I do believe it needs to be a mutually beneficial relationship and they love to see people thrive and and um, take their advice and um, be able to have a really positive impact on someone else's career. So for me, it was definitely informal in those early days and assembling people that I just really admired and who had been through this journey before, who could teach me and help me, um, especially with very specific problems, um, especially as you're starting out, things that you just don't know and things that you don't know that you don't know. So um, I was very lucky in that sense and I'm really great at putting my hand up and asking for help. So I was like, I don't know how to solve this problem. Who can help me with this? And so I sort of built a bit of an informal um, advisory board in the Wink business and then obviously the Right Fit has a much more sort of structured process. But we still have incredible um, sort of ad hoc advisors that I'll go to to unpick particular pain points. Yeah, I mean, I think that's um, uh, an essential trait, I think, of an entrepreneur. And I think a a misnomer or or certainly something that's a bit of a myth that entrepreneurs need to know everything. Mm. And, you know, this sort of messianic entrepreneur, we hold up the Steve Jobs of the world or the the Elon Musk of the world, who I think are unicorns in their own right, you know. And I think a lot of younger entrepreneurs feel this pressure that they have to have all of the answers. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. Um, so if you could go back and tell your 21-year-old self something different, uh, would you change anything? Or? Oh, 100%. What I mean, there's so, what, 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 so what, many what's learnings a, What's the number one way. piece of advice you give yourself at 21? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm a massive control freak. I do like to own and touch everything <laughs> in the business. Are. Yeah, um, Which is hard, right? Like, I mean, I think it's what makes entrepreneurs brilliant, but it also meant what, you know, is incredibly challenging. So um, for me, it would probably be being able to look back and say, right, if you had – maybe let go of a little bit of control earlier in the piece. It would have made it a more enjoyable journey. Mm. Um, so being able to delegate and getting great people around you earlier, um, even just down to things like, you know, bookkeeping or whatever, um, just to make the, the the journey more enjoyable because it is, it's a tough and ruthless slog um, as an entrepreneur. So definitely and probably to take stock through the process of all of the things that I was achieving um, because otherwise it's just this sort of long marathon you know without a lot of breaks along the way so I think stopping and going hey wow like you know you just hit this particular milestone or you've you know whatever it was um, yeah to sort of enjoy the journey a little bit more. Yeah I I think it's sound advice. Every entrepreneur I speak to wishes that they had have savoured some moments, mm. um, myself included. Sometimes you go back and you go, 
oh, I wish I had have enjoyed that more. But I was yeah. actually – I was – So focused uh, on the next so thing. So focused on the next thing. Yeah. And the next thing. And the next yeah. thing. And the next thing. You yeah. go, yeah, okay, done. Move on. Yeah. And when you're so close to it too, you're like, oh, yeah, I know it was good but it wasn't quite exactly what we wanted or, <laughs> you know, it wasn't – I th- kind of thought it was going to turn out more like this. So on to the next thing instead of going, actually, wow, that was, you know, industry changing or whatever. So Yeah. And then, look, that's a really good segue. I have this sort of fundamental belief that entrepreneurs have a, an innate sense of – dissatisfaction and and mm. they use that to fuel change right yes. so you know you had a dissatisfaction with the way that that models were being managed and being paid and yeah. you know that base sense of dissatisfaction creates innovation yes um however um, I think that entrepreneurs sometimes sit in that dissatisfaction in all aspects of their life, and so therefore they can never be fulfilled or never be satiated. How mm-hmm. do you how do you balance that out? Like, how do you introduce sort of gratitude or, you know, what do you want to call it? Smell the roses. Do you yeah. do you have a do you have a sort of a, a focus on that? Do you recognise that that's something that entrepreneurs sort of sometimes? I totally in? agree with that. Yes, and it's really really hard. Um, I've had to make a really conscious effort um, to because it's horrible to be around. Like it's horrible for your team. It's horrible for your friends and family. If all you're ever doing is being like, yes, but yes, but yes, but you know, could have been better. I would have done it this way on reflection. I, you know, instead of being, you know, because from the outside people are going, wow, that's amazing. You've achieved these things or you've done those things. And you're like, yeah, but you know, and it's, it's not, it's not nice. So I've had to really make a conscious effort to sort of stop and, and appreciate some of these things. So we have like, for example, we have a feel good channel on Slack where I'll just put in all of like, we get amazing customer feedback from both sides of our marketplace in the right fit. Um, and we get, you know, our NPS automatically integrates into our Slack channel as well. So the team can live see what people are saying and just really taking stock and going like wow look at this amazing piece of feedback we've just received or hey guys we've just had this you know amazing client win and that helps me personally stop and actually take note as well um and look at all the things that we're achieving along the way the small celebrations Mm, yeah but it's hard it is hard definitely to and also to make time and make it make it a priority because you're like yeah but i've got all of these other things that i need to do so yeah yeah. and and it's it's always be better yes exactly yeah exactly um so you you sort of mentioned that you know, the business has been around for 12 years, had to scale mm. up. You're a bit of a control freak like all yep. entrepreneurs are. I say that with <laughs> absolute respect. Yeah. Um, how did you go about letting go and hiring and mm. sort of bringing, I mean, going from sort of I guess one person with a laptop to yeah. how many yeah. staff do you have now? There's five in that business okay. and it's super, super lean. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Because So basically um, I built an end-to-end onboarding calendar management and payroll integration software for that business and that was I mean before that obviously we'd hired staff and you know gone gone through all of those usual business things um and that was great um but I could see that there was going to be an inflection point in that business where the more models we had the more staff we needed there was all of this key man dependency in the business opportunity for human error if a booker left all of the knowledge of their past clients and talent left with the with the booker so I was like this is not a sustainable business and I knew that the only way the only way an agency can grow is having more models more stock essentially more Mm. inventory um, and more clients so to do that I was like there's a there's a pain point here Um, so I built this yeah onboarding calendar management payroll so basically it deals with all of the onboarding of our talent so down to photos measurement sizing um, then it manages their schedules, so castings, bookings, payroll, um, overtime, receipt reimbursement, 
It's a bit of a bigger than Ben Hur system. And you built um, it bespoke? Yeah, it? yeah. So I spent a little bit of time sort of looking, obviously, if there was anything off the shelf. Yeah. And there wasn't anything available. Yeah. Um, so again, with the naivety of someone who'd never built a tech product, <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to build my own. And how it starts hard, how hard obviously, can it be? exactly. How hard can it be? Start always start small, right? I was like, I'm just going to build this like this system that could check availability and talent can say yes or no, I'm available for casting and then we can immediately just send that to a client. And I was like maybe then we could just also deal with like booking them and rostering them on their different shoot dates. Maybe we would need to build out the ability for that integrate with zero, so we can pay them and maybe we should do expense claim. Maybe while we're at it like clients always want to know like does she have – you know, blonde hair and her ears pierced and over a size nine shoe. So maybe I could build like an onboarding feature that could deal with there. So anyway, it turned into a giant system, <laughs> but I loved it. And basically it allowed, it was a super ridiculously expensive build because I had no idea how to go about building an MVP awesome. and got to the end of that build, but it allowed that business to scale. So now it's completely systemized and process driven. And it means that a super lean team can run 650 models. That's Australia wide. That's, so that's phenomenal. Yeah, and you survived a tech build. Yes, it took about eighteen months. <laughs> nearly killed me. I, there was a lot of tears. And there you was don't a look like a hundred. You know, <laughs> it was it was definitely a um, a challenging project, but that's completely so, transformed that business. That's amazing. And so you you run really lean. Um, yeah. is, has it been a, a sort of a, the same team with you over the period of time or is it a new yeah, team? Yeah, no, I mean we've definitely had team changes. Mm. Um, yeah, some of our staff have been with us sort of five or six years, which is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, and we have like amazing, amazing staff who, de- who you know, it's so important to me that they – understand our core values as business and we hire values first you know everything else I believe that you can train people in um so they have to really deeply you know be on board with what Wink is about and being celebratory and inclusive and being a part of you know extension of our talent and clients team and yeah tell me a bit more about that because a lot of entrepreneurs ask me you know how do you hire Mm. um and it's something I think a lot of entrepreneurs agonize over you know it's horrible it's so hard it's because you want to get people who represent, you know, certainly the values of the company. Yeah. It's a bit hit and miss. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen everything from like 20 interview processes <laughs> to like, I don't know, come and you yeah. know, intern. What Do you have a secret sauce? No, or? I wish I could say I did. Um, you know, fire fast is the only, you know, if oh. they don't fit, if they're – and look, a lot of people self-identify, right? Like so if you have a really strong culture and really strong values, then it is easy for people to get into the job and be like this kind of is not me and and, and both of you go, yeah, you know what, Let, let's find you a new – role that you're going to be happy in. Um, I definitely think trying to do as much identification up front. So doing a lot of background research into people, spending a lot, especially for key roles, I spend a lot of one-on-one time with people. So a lot of walking meetings, getting to know them, spending quality time together to see how they interact. And um, because I do believe skills you can teach, but obviously basic yeah. values and culture fit, you can't. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I'm, a, I'm a big walking meeting person. I love you know, it. There's yeah. some statistics that say um, – I heard some, you know, 70, 70% of statistics are made up on the spot. Um, however, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but something like they did a double blind um, and they – they, they found that people who walked and then went to solve a problem actually were far more effective at problems. Oh, I would totally agree with that. I'm a huge walker. Yeah. You'll see me walking I love the city <laughs> talking. I get, get my yeah. daily, daily steps in. But but I definitely believe in sort of seeing people um, 
in sort of different environments before you hire them. Yeah. So take them out to dinner, you know, yeah. catch up with them. Because I think, especially in a startup, if you've only got five staff, if you have one bad hire, yeah. the impact would be massive. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Um, and I, do you get the rest of the team involved in the hiring process? Depends on the role. So, um, and obviously I don't play a day-to-day role in the Wink business um, anymore since, you know, for about God, nearly three years now. Um, so in that business, I allow obviously they sort of make all of their own team decisions and I have an amazing managing director who makes all the magic happen. So um, I only get involved now in, in, in either really, really senior key hires um, or when something's really broken. So, But no, otherwise I don't get involved in sort of the wink hiring. Um, and I think it's really important in a team that size that they have autonomy to make decisions and – Higher and fire. Was that an adjustment for you sort of a couple of years ago to sort mm. of let go of the reins? Yeah, I always say it's like my firstborn, right? Like it's, <laughs> like, my, it's like my baby and I love it. And That's and special. honestly it was a massive ego blow because I, I'd i spent, what, t- nearly nine, nine years really in that business being, oh, my God, I can't take a holiday because clients need me. I'm indispensable. No one will know all of the things that I know. Clients will freak out if I'm not here. You know, there's so much key dependency in this business. It's all about me. Um, and then when I launched The Right Fit and stepped out of that business and into The Right Fit full time, like no one cared. You know, I put my out of office on, <laughs> redirected to my managing director and I was like, oh my gosh, all of these people are going to be ringing and freaking out and going, what's happened? Have you, have you died? You know, no one cared, you know. <laughs> you are, turns you out, are turns out, I'm totally replaceable. <laughs> turns out, the business went on without me. Um, and yes, no one, no one really cared. There was a really strong brand there. They knew what they were getting. They loved thing. it, and it, it was amazing. So yeah. look, it and you know, my team were incredible. So it was easier for me. Definitely, there was like a lot of fear there from my side of what is this going to look like? You know, is this business going to be able to survive without me? And um, and obviously I was, you know, heads down, completely immersed in another startup. So I kind of didn't have time, which was probably for the best. I d- actually didn't have time to go back in and, and, and jump on things and um, get under their feet. Um, so it really gave my team time to find their own management style, um, have their own wins and losses and, um, yeah, thrive and sort of survive without me. And, and so that's a that's a nice segue. So a few years ago you decided to found another business. I did. The right dot Yes, dip. correct. Uh, tell me about the inspiration behind that business. So it sort of happened while I was building this tech product for Wink. So, um, yeah, I couldn't find anything off the shelf and so I went and built this, you know, bigger than Ben-Hur system. Um, and it it's sort of while I was looking to the landscape and I could see so many things in our industry were changing. Like there was a move towards these smaller bits of snackable digital content. Brands were trying to fill these like always on social channels that they needed content pieces for and they were spending more money on them than they were spending on these traditional sort of big TBCs and print campaigns and consumers were calling for authenticity as well. So they wanted, you know, they didn't want this like 5'11 gorgeous model in their car ad anymore. They wanted like the relatable mum or, you know, whatever. So there was a real shift in advertising, in content, in the type of content that was required, in advertising spend. And and I could sort of see obviously the advent of the social media influencer, all of these things were changing. And Mm. I was like, okay, so I was building this system And in the background, I was kind of going, God, wouldn't it be good if we had all of these sort of talent approaching Wink saying, you know, I'm a, I don't know, I've been on My Kitchen Rules and 
all of these brands are approaching me for work. Could you represent me? And we were like, well, no, like you're not a model. Like where would I put you on the website is what it always came back to. What category would we put them under? Mm. Um, And then on the flip side, we had these brands coming to us saying, look, we need an authentic, real sort of chef type character for this Nestle ad. And we're like, oh, like if only I could connect the two of them. They're not models, but there's an opportunity here. So coming back to sort of the fundamentals of why I'd built Wink, you know, to to look after both of these parties but make sure they were safe and they got paid because there's an inherently in freelance economy, obviously people, there's, there's a lack of security, there's a lack of safety and there's a, you know, someone needs to streamline a payment process. So I could say, okay, well, I built this platform for Wink. If I could repurpose that, I was like, God, if only we'd built it so that clients could post their own briefs and talent could apply for them. So that was sort of where the idea initially came from. And so I sort of went and met with some people that I ad- admire and who I sort of could see maybe were potential users of this platform and and said, look, I've got this idea. What if I could build a marketplace for creative talent and models and actors and photographers and videographers and hair and makeup and and allow them to build their brand online, allow them so they don't have to go out and build a website and try and build their social profile and do their own Google AdWords and all of these things that creatives inherently struggle with and insurances and paperwork and admin. And on the flip side, if I could allow brands a really easy centralised place to find all of the things that they need. And so that was sort of the initial idea. Um, so that was, yeah, nearly, God, probably three years ago now. Um, and it's now what is the right fit. So um, a Pure Play two-sided marketplace for creative talent. Um, We've got about just over 8,000 talent on the platform um, throughout Australia and Southeast Asia and about 4,500 clients um, of all different kinds. So from creative agencies and advertising agencies and production companies um, through to startups who are shooting their very, very first piece of online content for their for their website. So, And was that a natural move for you? I mean, so it sounds like you're already in the middle of a tech build mm. and so you're going, okay, I'm going to build another sort of – you actually went, yeah. you went from sort of an agency to being a tech entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't really think that through. So <laughs> I was sort of – I went out and sort of did the base wireframes and obviously I had all the key learnings from that first build. So I was like, right, I know what not to do. Yep. I'm going to build my tech team in-house. <laughs> uh, and look, I guess in some sense I was – um, I was very lucky that I had a, a, you know, a financially viable business that could support my play idea in some ways. So um, I was like, okay, I'm going to build this sort of tiger team on the side of, you know, a tech team in-house that are going to work with me on this project and and flesh that out and get it to an MVP phase and, and see what the market says. So I'd sort of learned the hard way from the first time. So I sort of did that and, and realised that there really was something there and that there was – I think there was going to be a viable business. And so then it was a really tough decision of going, okay, well, what does that look like? You've now got, you've already got a full-time job and a, mm. and a business to run. And then now you've got this other idea, which is going to be all consuming and require a lot of um, heavy lifting um, to make a, a two-sided marketplace work. What does that look like? Are you going to go and do that one? And, and obviously it was hard. It was agonizing, you know, you spend whatever it had been, 10 years building a business that's finally mature enough that it runs in some sense without you and is financially viable and you know that's the dream and then are you willing to throw yourself back into a startup again 
and yeah. be, you know, are literally answering the phones, doing customer service. You know, I didn't have a PA anymore. I mean, I was like, oh my god, <laughs> am I really doing this? So, look, and I think I would have always regretted it. I really needed to know. I needed to know if you could do if it. If I could do it, if I could make this thing work, I fundamentally believed in the idea, and um, I real, I think I would have, yeah couldn't die not knowing so and was it more you wanted to know if you could make so the, so the interesting thing i find with entrepreneurs is sort of i, I call it like the second album challenge right so yeah. you have a first album that's a hit yeah and then the recording studio comes back <laughs> and go, now we need to write another yeah. album it's a second book problem as well yeah, um so it was was did you did you feel um i guess you didn't have investors in the first business you've obviously raised capital for yes. the second business but did you feel a sense of um i guess expectation that that you had to be successful or no and i probably didn't think enough about it to be honest i i was sort of so heads down in this ideation because it had come from this other sort of tech build i suppose i was like oh okay there's something there and i'd probably created a business before i realized it was a business um so there was definitely a period where I had to sit down and have a cold, hard conversation with myself about like, what is this going to look like? How are you actually viably going to do um, the business? You know, there's, there's this sort of entity of the Taryn Williams sort of show as well. So I was like, you know, I was doing a lot of public speaking and brand ambassador roles and mentoring and then you've got this bi- other business and then ca- do you have the capacity and time and and love and desire to do and to go again essentially mm. so and I think and I decided well yes you know like I've I've I'm, I'm ready to go and have another crack at this and and I think I also wanted to know there was so much I didn't know about that world you know tech business is so different to a traditional agency style Mm. essentially lifestyle business so I wanted that challenge I wanted I had itchy feet you know I'd I'd been in that same role essentially for 10 years Um, and so I wanted some new learnings I wanted to challenge myself and you know it's that and go all back go back to uni or do an MBA or something and I thought well may as well just learn on the job and you know and how did you go about because you've it's quite fascinating. I meet a lot of entrepreneurs who do exactly what you've done mm. and they suck millions of dollars out mm. of their mainline mm-hmm. business into their tech <laughs> yes. pet project. <laughs> yeah. And they go, what do you mean? And they don't MVP, they don't wireframe. Yeah. yeah. So obviously you learnt some of that when you were doing your, your tech build for Wink. Mm. How did you go about educating yourself on the fact that you probably shouldn't pull millions of dollars out of your mainline yes. business to, yeah. to, to create to create a, a, yeah, exactly a product a pl- market fit? Yeah. Exactly, a hobby business on the side. Yeah. Yeah, I guess at least I had the key learnings from the first build. So I was like, okay, I'm going to just build an MVP, Mm. something quick and dirty. It was a WordPress site. Let's actually see if we can onboard some clients and some talent, see if we've got some sort of product market fit before we go and spend, you know, building out a whole team and spending, you know, so we still spend like, I don't know, half a million bucks on that first, you know, iteration, Um, you know, sort of. They become expensive real quick. So, <laughs> they do. You can yeah. just throw a rock and spend yeah, half a million bucks. Exactly. On, so, on um, and I had really great people around me. So, I got great advisors. Um, I went out and found people who had built two sided marketplaces or had strong domain expertise in technology because obviously it was my skill set gap mm. um, and got those people around me from very, very early on. Um, I was very aware of what I didn't know. Um, and so had those people around me and said, look, I, this is what I want to build. Help me sort of get the bases right um, so that I can go out, see if I've got product market fit and then look at what, what we do next. So is that raising capital? Is that 
um, trying to grow this thing organically? Um, is it strategic partnerships? What would it look like? When did you know you had product market fit? We went to see a lot of – so as part of the process of raising capital, um, so we'd gone to see quite a lot of our clients and talent um, and done a lot of user research and we could see that this thing was organically working really well without any sort of marketing. Um, we were getting great referral business um, and there was a real desire from our clients like that to the point where we're having those conversations where people are saying this is going to change our lives, this is going to change how we run our businesses. And it was a real democratisation of content as well because there was sort of this – this startup and small business um, real, I suppose, influx in that sort of 24, 36 months ago um, of brands that needed to create content and it wasn't financially viable for them to do it through the traditional channels. They weren't going to go and hire an agency that was going to charge them 50, 60, 80 grand for a piece of content. Like that's not viable for a small business. No. Um, and there was this, you know, it was intimidating for them to go to a, a talent agency or an acting agency or even go and hire a photographer. Where would you start? So um, there, I think that was sort of a real proof point for us that we were solving a, a problem for those clients. And because the advertising industry was sort of really being disrupted, they were really grappling with, okay, well, how are we going to stay financially viable and be able to produce the volume of content that our clients are demanding of us using our current archaic system? So they could see the opportunity as well. So we'd sort of spent a lot of time talking to both sides of the marketplace and we could see this sort of growing in the right direction up and to the right. So um, that's sort of when we knew, okay, th there's something here um, and to do this we're going to have to really throw some fuel on the fire. Um, and that was a case of going out and talking to people and going, okay, well, what does that next phase look like? Do we raise capital? Do we? And I really still needed to make the full transition from Wink into the right fit and um, also look at more broadly what I was doing and what sort of capacity I would have and what role I wanted to play in the company. So. Com completely. And so capital raising mm. in itself is just a beautiful Full-time job. job, yeah. Full-time job. <laughs> yeah. It's something that, you know, I think um, most startup founders struggle with. I'm assuming you didn't have to capital raise for Wink and, you know, that business, no. you know. Yeah. So how was that experience for you and – what was the sort of the decision point? Because mm. I guess coming from a business that I'm assuming self-funded, you don't yeah. have any shareholders to no. deal with. That's right. Um, you're, you're completely, I guess, dictator. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm like, it's my business. <laughs> I do it my way. I'll yeah, exactly what I want. <laughs> going from that to going, I'm going to take on some external money. I mean, yes. I think you took money from Airtree. I mean, yeah. you, you did pretty okay. okay. <laughs> in terms of like, in terms of who to take money from. Yeah. Um, but in in terms of sort of that decision where you are now sort of in not only a new business, you're in tech entrepreneur, um, you now have that added sort of complexity of yes. firstly raising capital, which I'm assuming you didn't have any experience before yeah. doing, and then, well, now I've got shareholders yeah. and a board and yeah. people I need to answer to. to. Yeah, definitely. How did that go? Yeah, and I'd never had a boss before, right? So I'm like yeah. the worst candidate. <laughs> no, um, so look, I we yeah, we raised with Airtree and it was a really amazing – like I learned a lot obviously on the job. Um, yeah. I had an amazing mentor who was chairman of my board as well um, who had sort of been with me since the sort of first, I guess, ideation of, of the right fit, um, who was invaluable in that process, who had raised – 
multiple rounds of capital and had lots of successful exits. So having someone who could literally handhold me through the process mm. and obviously I spent a lot of time on Google, like, you know, a re- deep, deeply capital. researching, <laughs> yeah, deeply researching the minutiae of shareholder what agreements. and share? Correct, correct. <laughs> and Why are venture capitalists? Exactly. <laughs> and I think also being, I think you're exactly what you said before, there's this idea that um, – entrepreneurs need to know everything. Mm. I was the exact opposite in that process and I would be the person who was like, talk me through what a preference share is. Yep. Why Why <laughs> do you need preference shares and, and like I get it. ordinary shares? Yeah. So, why, so and, and it was just having these really open conversations with people and yeah. going, well, like if we're going to get into bed together and we're going to be yeah. married for the life of my business, yeah. we why need to be able to have these. They, yeah, we need, to have, we need to have these conversations and I, you know, and it was – a, a really amazing process sort of going through and being like, well, I can see why you need that and can you see why I need this? And and I genuinely believe if they're the right partners, they will want you to have a good outcome too. Oh, if completely. everyone starts with a, a negative feeling that someone's been, you know, fucked over or getting an unfair deal, then the relationship isn't going to work from day one. So I think not being afraid to ask those questions and talk about – and I think I, I also had – my non-negotiables. I mean, it wasn't ideal to keep, you know, hemorrhaging my other business for, <laughs> yeah. for hundreds of thousands of dollars a year um, yeah. to put towards my hobby business, but I could do it. So mm. I had my non-negotiables and I, there was certain things that I was like, look, I can't, you know, I can't give these things up. These are the things that I, I you know, fundamentally for me are deal breakers. So and I'm sure on your side you have these fundamental things that are deal breakers for you. So let's talk about them really early on in the piece and work out what we can budge on and how we can find some middle ground. Um, and then it was also really important for me that we didn't just take money for money's sake, you know, because mm. that's not solving a problem. I really wanted strategic investors who added a lot of value. So as part of that first round, I made literally my dream list and I sat down and I went, if I could have anyone involved in this business – Australia or international, what would they look like and who would they be? And wrote them out and talked to other people and said, like, who do we know? Who is the best in breed, in advertising, in marketing, in technology, in Australia? Who would I love to have around the table if I could pick up the phone and and have these people at my disposal as part of my board? Who would it be? And then I went out and met with them and took them the idea and said, this is what I'm doing. We're raising capital for it. Um, I would love to have you involved. This is why. Um and so we took money from Airtree and um, about five or six strategic um, other investors. Um, yeah, and I think it was just the the process of understanding what I wanted and trying to get really, really clear on that made it easier to raise capital. I mean, it was definitely not an easy process at all, um, but it put so much rigor into the business as well. Like I'm so glad that we did it because otherwise, you know, obviously <laughs> Wink is a perfect example. You build a business and you exactly as you said, you're like, it's my business, I'm going to do it my way. Like, yeah. you know, and you don't, you don't have anyone that you're accountable to and you can run yourself down dark alleys. Whereas having people who had built incredible businesses before and who had seen, you know, a plethora of different um businesses in their portfolio that they would they can say hey look 
just be careful with that particular thing because, you know, this other company had had an experience where X, Y, and Z or, hey, I can see this particular metric is moving in this direction. That could be an indicator of X, Y, and Z. So it was amazing to have that brains trust around the table um, and to put, yeah, the rigor in the business where we were health checking and sense checking because it's so easy, in, especially in the early days, because you're, you're so busy doing, you don't necessarily have the time to pull yourself back and go, okay, what, how, what have we done over the last month? Are we meeting our product roadmap? Are we going to hit these key milestones? So, I think it's an excellent point. I mean, and I think it's about achieving the right kind of balance because mm. I've seen, you know, the worst case scenarios, I see businesses that are funded by friends and family yeah. and they've got overbaked valuations, no rigor, mm-hmm. they've got more money than air. Um, yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, I think you can overfund a business. On the other hand, yeah. I've seen, you know, 120-page board packs for, you know, companies yeah. that aren't, you know, making any money and you sort of go, okay, there's got to yes. be a happy medium. But but I think you're right. I mean, if you take sophisticated money, I mean, the venture community in Australia I think is – um, you know, come leaps and bounds over the past three, four, yeah. five years. You know, most of the major VCs in Australia are, you know, highly, um, you know, um, have high levels of integrity, highly yes. professional. I think, you know, a lot of them are like somebody like Daniel, for example, at Airtree is a former entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, so they understand, I think, and yes. have a lot more empathy for the entrepreneur about, okay, well, this is enough rigor. This is too much rigor. Yeah. You know, these are the things that really matter. Yes, you know, and it was a learning for me at the start, you know, and Daniel would tell you this, I'd show up to my first board meetings and I'd be like, here's my school presentation, <laughs> you know, like, ta-da, <laughs> like, here's me, here's my shiny things, look at what I've done, you know, spreadsheets and whatever. And they're like, this is not the point of a board meeting. Like, yeah. you don't you, know, you don't, you need to come here and impress us with your shiny things. <laughs> um, we're a resource to you. We're here to, so That's use awesome. the, the next two and a half hours or three hours of our time to solve problems what do you need? Like take it for granted that we've read what you've sent over and thanks for the shiny presentation, but what do you need? How, how can we unpick what problems have you had in the last 30 days or that we can help you with and, you know, let's sit down in this room, use this brain's trust and let's, uh, you know, spend three hours deep diving into something. So that was a huge mindset shift for me, um, not treating it like a, yeah, I guess an em- employer-employee relationship or, you know, these these bosses that you had to report to um, as opposed to using them as as amazing resources who were there to help you solve a problem. Mm. And I think um, board composition is something that a lot of entrepreneurs agonise over. It's really hard really hard to get the right people at the right time because um, right on, on some some senses people want sort of shiny boards that sort yeah. of have big names at the same time I've been there when the shit has hit the fan and yeah. you want a board that goes like I don't know how to price this or yeah. I'm not sure about packaging or what do you yeah. think about like international expansion when is the right time yeah. and and having uh, obviously, you, uh, uh, the role of a board, a formal board, is is governance and oversight and all of those, yeah. you know, good things. But at the same time, having a board that is experienced in that sort of yeah. kind of growth phase is just invaluable. Yeah. And people who are gritty and willing to get their hands dirty sometimes too, because you're absolutely right. Like you know, there's advantages of having big shiny names who can open doors which is great but then there's also times where you're like I just need tangible help to solve this problem I need someone who can get in and get their hands dirty sit with me for a couple hours and and solve this particular problem um Mm. so yeah it's about definitely hard to find the right balance at the right time it is but it's so critical um shifting gears a little bit so I know the right fit isn't strictly an influencer business but we have seen the rise of the Instagram Influencer. We have indeed. And yes. if I was going to speak to anybody about it, it'd probably be somebody like you. So, <laughs> so I mean, it's. I guess 
I've, I've sort of seen, um, I guess, some shifts in terms of sort of certainly there was this whole sort of the rise of the influence, a lot of businesses, gold rush to sort of move to monetize influences, fighting the platform, you've got Instagram, then you've got sort of disclosure, are people paid and they're not paid, how are the ads presented, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Do you have a view on firstly the longevity of the influencer yeah. business and, and do we think is, – is that the future of, of advertising and then how do you sort of – sort of view disclosure and authenticity mm. around influence. Yeah. So I think firstly we've always had influences. There's mm. always been, you know, prior to digital being our primary channel for advertising, you know, there was celebrities endorsing products on television or sports people or journalists are influencers, you know. So there's always been influences. It's just now more and more we obviously spend our money and time online and predominantly on social channels. So, of course, now when people talk about influencers, it's more so in the social space and social media. So, mm. again, I don't think that um, – I think all influencers will be across a number of different channels. So, I think there will – there's we have clients who just work with LinkedIn influencers okay. um, who just work with YouTube or Snapchat or Instagram. Obviously, predominantly when people think about – Influences. Um, influences. They think about Instagram um, and, you know, I think that's based on just the usage and um, usage types that people are used to um, consuming. I think gone are the days where you can have the businesses that were built on influencer marketing. So I don't think you'll have those, you know, the teeth whitening multimillionaires. Um, I, unfortunately, you know, that's both the algorithm and the consumer being much savvier now. Yeah. I think to get cut through you need to tell a really authentic story. Um, and I think you need to take people on a journey. So I think we we treat this relationship with our phone. It's such a personal one. It's a it's um it can't be something that brands use to sell on. You need to either be educating, you need to be informing, you need to be entertaining. But it need it's a value exchange, right? Like I'm I'm there. If you're a brand and you want to tell me something, it needs to be adding value to my life. Otherwise, I'm going to scroll right past it. And mm. and it's you know it's such a powerful powerful thing as a consumer to be able to dictate how you're spoken to you know we, we don't have to sit through ad breaks anymore um so we can dictate to a brand what we expect as a consumer which i think is incredibly powerful and i think um, brands that use influencers really well are very aware that these these influencers have spent years time energy money in building an audience that trusts them mm. and that is so hard as a brand like people don't want to hear a brand tell them how good their brand is mm. they want to hear it from they want to hear it from a recommendation from someone that they trust so the the fact that influencers can now do this online they can build these audiences that trust them and they've spent years building that trust and so for a brand to be able to find that and find someone whose audience matches the kind of audience that they're looking for for their product if it's done well it's so powerful so i mm. think the hard thing for a brand is being really, really clear on what your values are and what you're trying to achieve and coming up with that first before you start looking for influencers. Because what we see internally um, is a lot of brands who go, we want to do an influencer campaign, who's right for us? And we're like, you need to know, what are you trying to change, you know, brand sentiment? Are you, is it just a purely a brand awareness piece? Are you trying to sell a particular product? Is it a new market entry? Like, what is it um, that you're trying to achieve? Because that completely dictates the kind of person that you need to engage mm. um and then people go oh well should we do macro a macro influences or micro you know a micro like it really depends on what you're what it is that you're Completely. trying to achieve so 
Um, so I think firstly there's an education piece and it's just because the, the industry is so new. Everyone's still grappling with that. What is influencer marketing? How do we do it well? And then how do we find the right people and, and find this authenticity and trust piece um, within those right people? So, look, I think it's a big and broad conversation. I definitely think that it's the future of marketing. I do mm. think that um, whether it's engaging with um, – entities who have you know brands like pedestrian and um, junkie media who have such a strong and engaged audience are in fact influencers themselves so whether it's you know brands and entities themselves or whether it's individuals um, who have a strong social profile and following and and are a voice of authenticity and trust um, I definitely think that more and more brands will engage with them especially as we see the algorithms continuing to change and especially as it's harder and harder and consumers are just so um, disengaged, I think, with above-the-line traditional marketing. Yeah, they are. I mean, cut-throughs, I mean, I think brands, 2019 brands are still struggling, right? Like, yeah. And, and it, they are, and I think you're right. It is relatively new, even though for those people who have sort of been in the industry, it's been around for ages. But for yeah. brands, they struggle with control. Yes. They struggle with like, no, but yeah. like, I want the product represent exactly this yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. And, and They're and really the, dictatorial. And the influencers like, are like, no, that's not how my audience engages. Gages, yeah. And, and, you know, you've got this sort of to and fro between influencers and brands. Yeah. And, and brands traditionally having the control. Yes, and, and yeah, the message has come top down. That's yeah. how it's always been this in marketing. Is brand guidelines, this yep. is how it's going to work, et cetera, exactly. et cetera. And, we're gonna, and, like, and this breaks know, all of that. It and does. it's really uncomfortable for them. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine what it looks yeah. like to be a brand person. And, yes. you know, I mean, they must struggle. But, and, you, and then you see something like Fire, which if you yes. how good's the Oh, my gosh, amazing. And, right. and you know, it, it, it's uh, one, it's great entertainment, right? Let's yeah. just be clear. I mean, it's, if, if you haven't seen it, Fire Festival doco on, on Netflix. Um, but then you've got sort of like influencers who then promoted that and sort of there's that sort of challenge about what mm. responsibility does the influencer have for the product. Yeah. And, you know, and, and as I heard somebody say, look, if somebody appeared in a Ford commercial, it's not their responsibility to make sure that the car works, you know. Yeah. I mean, to a certain point, even as an influencer, of course, you know, you built this huge amount of trust um, with your audience. Um, you consume that trust if it if you break it, you know. Yeah. And, and I think influencers understand that better than brands. Yes. Um, and there are has to be a demarcation of responsibility. I mean, I don't think influencers can do due diligence on every single campaign they ever work on. No, that's right. And I think there should be the idea in an ideal world is that the influencer likes the product and engages with the product mm. in, a, in a really organic way and it feels real and it feels right and that they're allowed to shape a story that fits with their audience so it is a natural and trustful process. That's the ideal scenario. And, of course, marketing is never going to be perfect like that, but that's sort of the closer that we can get to that sort of utopia, um, the better. And I think that's when both parties win I think in that sense the the influencer wins it feels real and right for their audience and it is adding value to their audience and for a brand it's obviously positive brand sentiment and they're getting this you know engaged audience um, you know really trusting and, and wanting to consume whatever piece of content it is that the brand um, wanted them to see and feel and 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 react with so I think that's the, the the utopia if we can try and get there that's great and I think it's definitely an education piece trying to get brands to understand look getting a hundred influencers to post a photo of your whatever you know is not going to shift the meter that is not you know maybe you'll get a little bit of brand awareness but that's you're not going to see the ROI I think that they expect um yeah it's not like a google adword correct and, correct and I think they think that's yeah. the, that's the case yeah. so as a, as a beautiful segue 
phones. Yes. So, you know, we, we've spoken a lot about sort of the fact that, you know, brands are disintermediated mm-hmm. and we're spending increasing amounts of time on our phones. Yes. What's your relationship with your phone like? It's actually not too bad. Um, so bizarrely, but back to the Wink Tech build, when I built that platform, it had two-way responsive SMS in yep. the platform. And when we were doing the beta testing, I plugged my mobile number into the, um, which is the mobile number I've had since I was 13 or whatever, <laughs> um, into the beta build for yep. testing. And then we, we launched the product and no one had bothered to go back and change the two-way responsive SMS from yeah. my mobile number to like <laughs> so a no, mobile. So any SMS that wasn't correctly sent would come through to my mobile. I'm mean, God, this is like, I don't know, seven years ago or something. So I went, okay, well, I'm just not going to use a mobile phone anymore. So wow. for about 18 months, I didn't use a mobile phone at all. So I was literally that person that was like, I will meet you outside the cinema at 6.15. And if you're, if you're not at the cinema at 6.15... I won't be able to find you because I have a mobile phone anymore. <laughs> and so it was amazing. So I, I used a landline, which I loved, or I emailed. And if you couldn't get me on either of those things, then I was unavailable. And it was life-changing. So, look, I obviously have to use a mobile now for work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yes, I'm guilty of consuming social media content. And, again, it's that hard line where you go, oh, you can kind of justify it because I kind of need to do it for my work. <laughs> for but quote, unquote, Exactly. Work. But do I really, you know, <laughs> or is that just really a little bit indulgent? So, but, no, look, I have a pretty healthy relationship with it. I don't really use my phone during the day. I think now, especially when you can have, you know, WhatsApp and your messages and things on desktop, the things that I genuinely need to mm. do my job um but i'm a big lover of email and um really yeah i've, I've you're the first I've, person ever on this podcast to say they love it oh my gosh i love email i hate <laughs> text messages I, I don't read facebook messages i don't i, I got rid of facebook yeah see i just so it's just another channel that i'm like oh another thing i have to check um i rarely use instagram messages it's very perfunctory for me i i would i live and die by my calendar everyone knows that if they even if they're having a coffee with me or a social get together better be in the calendar or I won't be there so yeah Yeah. so super successful really busy entrepreneur how do you maintain balance in your life I wish I, I or, wish. Or is, there, or, is there, or is there no such thing? But you, no. you, know, you look healthy. You're, oh, not, you're, not, thank you're you. not like, you know, you yeah. know like no, under the desk. Like in a, I, certainly in a have my, I certainly have my moments. I certainly have my moments. No, look, I don't have any sort of um, Is it something you consciously look I, at, at? Yeah, I do. And I have some non-negotiables. So like I, you know, exercise for me. So I get mm. up early and I train. I trained this morning. And um, so things like that are just non-negotiables for me. I have to do them. I know how important it is for my mental state. If I don't have those things, then things start to slide. Um, diet, I'm, you know, I really need to have. I'm pretty, pretty methodical, and I, I need to have my things and I, you know, routine. Yep. So that really helps me thrive. But it's really hard, especially you know, there's only so many things you can control. Um, that's you know, a part especially of as a the control journey. freak. That's just correct. You've correct. grown, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, with with the travel and and obviously we have a huge number of events in our industry, so it is hard. Um, um, definitely, and and I probably about two years ago I made some um, really clear decisions on things that were non-negotiable for me and people that were non-negotiable for me. So I have a very tight core group of friends um, that I will make time for, but I don't have a lot of acquaintances or big social groups because yep. it's impossible to maintain. Um, and I spent a lot of time feeling really guilty that I couldn't go to so-and-so's birthday or baby shower. Um, and now I've just had to be quite brutal with that and go, I can only commit to having this many 
sort of things in my life, exercise, my health, um, things that I will make time for and everything else. And I think it's mentally going, you know, okay, and for the next six months, this is what it's going to look like. These things have to fall by the wayside because there is only so much space. Yeah. How do you deal with stress? Not very well. <laughs> Look, I, everyone tells me I should meditate and I love the idea in theory and I've tried so many times and I've been to so many retreats <laughs> and so many classes and it just doesn't stick for me. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean every entrepreneur is trying it, tried it or, you know, yeah. want, wants to try it. Yeah. So, um, no, look, I don't. most of them have got very busy minds. Yes, yeah. And look, I still, uh, unfortunately, which is the wrong way to think about it, see it as another thing I need to find time for. <laughs> Whereas in theory, it makes more time and space because you operate better. So I need yeah. to change that mindset. But um, no, look, I think I have an amazing naturopath and nutritionist who is very sort of a little bit psychic and, um, you know, really helps me manage my stress levels. Um, I take a lot of vitamins and supplements um, to make sure that I'm as healthy as I can be. Um, and I'm, I'm probably a lot more self-aware now than I was in my twenties, you know, where I can, I can see, okay, this is, um, you're at a peak period for stress right now and, and put parameters in place to, to make sure that I deal with that, whether it's, you know, finding quiet time or working from home or limiting, you know, things that are going to add additional stress to me. Yeah. If you, if you were sort of speaking to an entrepreneur in terms of sort of, you know, on this podcast, we've Mm. got sort of, sort of seasoned and and sort of, you know, people who are aspiring to be mm. entrepreneurs, what sort of advice would you give somebody who was just starting out? So somebody who's yeah. listening to this podcast, maybe they're 20 and they're going, do you know what, I'm going to go and leave the corporate world or yeah. no, I'm going to start my own business. What would, be, what would be your sort of key pieces of advice? Definitely have a really good support network around yeah. you. So um, from mentors, advisors, um, mental health, you know, making sure that you've got people around you that can keep all of those areas in check, your health, your wellness. Um, and yeah, people that can help advise you on the journey, um, cause it can be incredibly isolating. So making sure that you have those people around you that can, you know, make it a little bit less of a, a scary and overwhelming and isolating journey is so, so important. Um, it is lonely. Um, I think that's a common theme. A lot of entrepreneurs mm. sort of say like, it's sort of, you can't necessarily share, um, some of the things that may be troubling you with your staff or with of your investors. Co- yeah. Yeah, it is. It's really tough, obviously, because you spend, you know, 12 hours a day with your team or whatever. Yeah. Um, so you're, and you're, you become so close, right? But there's obviously things that you can't share with them. Yeah. So it can be really, really isolating. Um, and then your friends and family at some point get sick of you <laughs> complaining <laughs> yeah. or, you They're know, like, venting or trying to unpick a particular problem or talking about your business, you know. And, and they don't understand and it sometimes. That's well. right. That's right. And, you know, bless my, my parents are absolutely divine human beings and they'll always be like, you know, but we're so proud of you. You're doing such an amazing job and it's all going to work out, darling. <laughs> You're like, just saying it's all going to work out is not making it make work out. <laughs> so I know, like, you're like, Don't oh tell my me to relax and it's going to work yeah, out. It's it's, not. That's right. It's exactly, exactly right. So, um, yeah. yeah. I, I tend to think um, you sort of almost need two boards. Like I think you need a business board and almost like a pit crew. Like, yes. you know, I've sort of in my world have sort of separated out my advisory boards into sort of people who I go to, sort of like you were speaking about, like experts. Like, you know, I need somebody who understands pricing and packaging or marketing yeah. or some technical aspect and then there are people I think that 
um, when I say on to entrepreneurs, I go find people who actually just care about you, not your business. Yes, you know where they go. Hey, okay, are you sleeping? Yes, you know you you looking at you a little bit more holistically. Yeah, yeah. Go, like you know what you've been a bit of an asshole today. Yes, you know, you yeah. Know, kind it's of just, so important to have those people, and generally they're people who have either been through this themselves or you know have someone very close to them that has been through this, and they just hold you so much more accountable because they they. More, um, there's a lot more transparency. I think they see you holistically, and so they will say things like, "Yeah, look, can you not see that this is like a repeating pattern that you maybe maybe you don't deal with this particular yeah. element well, or maybe the problem you're not is you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> can you not see that there's a there's I one consistent person yeah, yeah. In, in all of these scenarios? Maybe it's you. Yeah, definitely. No, I totally agree with you. And having those people around you who um, are possibly. Um, and and can tell it like it is. Who who aren't afraid to say yes, you know. Yeah, you non bullshit people. Like, yeah, you yes. need those people in your life. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Especially as a driven entrepreneur. So, what's next for you? I mean, the right fit, I think, is is such an amazing and exciting time. You know, we've got some incredible new features and functionality which are coming in the next. Fingers crossed, <laughs> two two to three weeks. Um, so if, is that what the developers are? I know you? they're sitting at home right now, being oh. like, "I can't believe she just promised that." Um, <laughs> so, which I'm really really excited about. Which will sort of um, it, it's and I think with the business overarchingly is at a really interesting time because I think the industry is at a really interesting time. So, um, I'm very excited about that. Um, we're also looking at some new market entries internationally, um, which again, hopefully, should be should be cemented in the next sort of month. So, um, yeah, so it's it's all consuming. It's um, it's Sounds exciting. Like but look, I mean, it's, it is so challenging. It, there's definitely nights where I am in the fetal position on the floor saying I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I think that is the sign of, you know, um, well, you know you yeah, levelling you know, up. If um, it's not out of control, you're not going fast enough. enough it, yeah. And look, you know, and I think you have those, you know, the, re- the highs are really high and the lows are really low, right? Mm. Like that's the, that's the unfortunate thing of um, being an entrepreneur and being in startups. It is. It, it, unfortunately, you've got to take the good with the bad. Yeah. Um, so just to finish off, can we do a couple of quiet questions? Oh, go for it. Favourite book? Oh, gosh, okay. Um, I love Aaron Daddy Roy um, who wrote The God of Small Things, which is an incredible book and a nice sort of escapism. Are you a um, paper book person or are you a – Paper book all the way. Really? Yeah. I have Old a I have a bit of a thing with books. I have a huge bookshelf at home full of books and when I finish them – I like to write in them and send them to people that they've just reminded me of. So oh, whenever, that's a good idea. Yeah, whenever I read them, I just think, oh, my gosh, you know, who would love this? Or, God, that reminds me of so-and-so. Usually random people that I've met like once or twice and, yeah, and they get a random a book, book in the mail. So I'm Mary condoing my house at the oh. moment. Oh, my God. And I'm How like, is that? It's it's a bit liberating, I've yeah. got to say. It's intense, you know, like it's a, does this spark joy? No. No. <laughs> no. Out. No. Yeah. Oh so my God, good. I collect so much crap. Yeah, yeah. It feels it's hard, it feel, isn't it? It's hard, but it's yeah. liberating. Yeah, get it. <laughs> She's a nutcase. I love her. Yeah. iPhone or Android? iPhone. Just purely for the simplicity that everything connects and works, and I don't need to think about it. Favorite app? Ooh, probably Slack. Slack. Yeah, I do love it. It's totally transformed how we work. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, Slack or Trello? I do. I use. I use no. Trello for. My, oh God, you know what? Probably just calendar, let's be honest. Calendar. Yeah, you know. Get a Gmail. Yeah, yeah. I had somebody pitch me an idea for shared calendars once. I'm like, have you heard of Gmail? Gmail, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's a show of bad pitches. Um, <laughs> if you had to choose between bacon or cake? Ooh, that is a tough one. 
Mm, I would usually go savory. I love bacon. I would go like cheese. Can I change the you, question? Yeah, you can go I'd cheese. Go, or I'd go cake. like a cheese board over a dessert if that's the yeah, cheese nah, board with a sticky. Hundred percent. Yeah. I'm vegetarian. Okay. I reckon bacon's a vegetable. But oh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> pineapple on pizza. Gee whiz, that's so Australian, isn't you know, it? And, and, yeah, and it's highly controversial. The, the, topic. Yeah, the, the ham and pineapple. Look, I don't mind it. Yeah, you, you're ambivalent. Yeah, I'm ambivalent. Exactly. Yeah, look, exactly. it's not what I would order, but if it was served to me, fine. Yeah. <laughs> you're not like no, no, no pineapple no, on pizza. No, no. Okay, good to know. Um, favorite podcast or TED talk? Or you are you are listening to podcasts? I love podcasts, and I was literally just saying to someone yesterday, it's so hard to find new good podcasts. I feel it like is. the search functionality really needs improvement. Staunch. Could it not just present me back with things that I might like? Um, yeah, it does. I recently just listened to The Butterfly Effect, um, which is a, a podcast on the impact of Pornhub on different elements of the economy to really? um, porn stars, you know, future careers to um, the development of um, sexuality in teens. Like it's a fascinating – it's about like, six six parts. And um, it's, so it's just on that topic. That's yeah, it. yeah. Amazing. Does the, yeah, the, the concept of the serial podcast has really sort of taken off. Like it, just telling yes. one story, that's it, yeah. one and done. One and done, yeah. Butterfly effect. effect yes. Got to check it out. Yeah. Um, if you could take an album uh, or a band or an artist <laughs> to a desert island. Oh, probably at the moment Rufus I'm pretty obsessed with. Really? Um, EDM. Yes, yeah, um, would, would be up there. But, I mean, I guess if I were to spend solid time with them, Fleetwood Mac, I mean, I think oh, just because I think it would be pretty wild. Yes, I absolutely. I'm going to buy ridiculously yeah. priced secondary yeah. market tickets. tickets. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. me too. Amount, I think it's the last on that tour. Yeah, oh, um, for sure. Got to be close. Massive. Yeah. And um, I heard that Neil Finn is playing the guitar. Wow. Yeah, he's replaced their guitarist. That's amazing. And like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I heard. I'm not, don't don't quote me on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, here we go. This is how rumors spread. Neil, if you're listening, <laughs> get onto it. Um, if you could invite somebody to dinner, living or dead, I mean, they'd be living when they came to dinner. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. Esther Perel, actually. I'm a little bit obsessed with her at the moment. Um, she's an amazing speaker, relationship expert. Um, yeah, I've heard her recommended. She's yeah. got a book out. She's, she's a relationship expert. Yeah, right? yeah, she's incredible. I saw her speak in LA maybe two years ago, three years ago. Um, but I would love to, yeah, pick her brain on love languages and the future of monogamy and, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting cat. Yes. Um, if you could thank somebody, you'd like to sort of thank somebody publicly acknowledged from a gratitude standpoint, who has helped you? Oh, my gosh. Um, so many people, um, one of my, my, my first mentor, um, in the right fit business who was absolutely phenomenal, um, and was chairman of my board for a long time, um, who taught me so much and really got me through some of those teary nights where I didn't want to do it anymore and I was out of my depth and scared was an incredible incredible human being um he definitely deserves a big public thanks so excellent um and where can people find out more about you uh linkedin linkedin um i'm a big linkedin fan as well um or they can email me yeah insta it's just taryn williams on all of the channels i don't have anything any clever quirky names so no no apostrophes underscores no no, just taryn williams on all the things thank you so much (laughs) thank you for having me it's been an absolute pleasure hopefully we'll have you back and hear all about the next phase the next chapter the next crazy startup idea i'm looking forward (laughs) to it thank you so much
I hope you enjoyed Taryn's episode. She is, in my opinion, one of Australia's top young entrepreneurs and is extremely generous in sharing her experiences with others. If you'd like to find out more about me or the podcast, then check out jamiepride.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe to make sure you get the latest episodes. Have a great week and don't forget to take care of yourself.